Welcome back, listeners. I'm Lee. And I'm Amaya. And you're listening to Fem South. Mother and child, come with me. Sisters young and old, now we see. Let's all come together. Mm-hmm. Come together. So let's get started. Amaya and I are here today to talk about a book that we're reading in our book club, Naomi Wolf's book entitled Vagina. Naomi Wolf's Vagina. Yes, we're talking about Naomi Wolf's Vagina. (laughs) This is a great book to talk about women's sexuality. And I wanted to read just really quick uh, one little paragraph from her book that sort of summarizes everything. Naomi says, My journey finally led me to conclude that with the exception of a few healers, teachers, and practitioners, we are indeed, for all our liberation, constraining the vagina and sexual ideologies that are actually much less than liberating and that are sometimes new, hip, or sexy forms of old-style enslavement and control. Or else we are actively ignorant of the true role and dimensionality of the vagina. I came to conclude that the vagina is not nearly as free today in the West as we are led to believe, both because its full role is seriously misunderstood and also because it is disrespected. I mean, this is a really big book with a lot of information, so we may not be able to cover everything, but we're going to go ahead and get started. Amaya, what did you, what was your first impression of the book? What did you think? Oh my God, I love the book. I absolutely love the book. I think that this is, this is a book that needs to be on every bedside table of women and their partners. I mean, this is, this is so important to read. I loved it. I felt the same. I really, this book spoke to me a lot with a lot of issues that I was having in my life. So I'm right there with you. I really love the book as well. I know one of the first chapters is her discussion about orgasms and dopamine. Right. I mean, so she goes over the biology of an orgasm, and then she goes over the psychology of an orgasm, and then she goes into the spirituality of an orgasm. And... You know, it's all of them are important to understand. And, you know, Western science has really started to understand the biology and the psychology of an orgasm. And I love how she goes into talking about dopamine, oxytocin, and even testosterone release for an orgasm. She actually refers to dopamine as the ultimate feminist chemical. Mm-hmm. which I really like that phrase. And I think one of her main points is, you know, dopamine, when we are operating at our optimal levels or when we have optimal levels of dopamine, that it really connects women with our sense of confidence, our creativity, and our, you know, sense of who we are as women, which I really like. And then she talks about oxytocin and testosterone, which I thought was really interesting. So the oxytocin is the connection hormone. That's the hormone that's released when a woman is breastfeeding. And that is also released in orgasm, which increases the connection to partner. Testosterone is also released during orgasm, which then, you know, increases a woman's ability to assert herself, her courage, Right, her confidence. Mm-hmm. So these are all really important 
hormones that are released during orgasm. And so necessary for women to be having orgasms, like true orgasms. So there is so much information in this book about the biology, about the autonomic nervous system, which of course most of us don't even know what that is, <laughs> which he goes in, you know, to talk about there is this unconscious part of our nervous system that regulates digestion, heartbeat, breathing, right? It's important through <laughs> orgasm that we activate the autonomic nervous system. Really, really important. You know, and so this this is kind of gets scientific. So everything is connected. Right. You know, you start to cut you know, you start to cut off those connections in different parts of your body through injury, through not exercising or paying close attention to your body in general, then you should not be surprised to find that you're now having issues in the realm of sex and vice versa. If you have a flexible, healthy, free-moving body where energy is flowing, then you're going to have a better connection between your your vagina and your brain. So the brain-vagina connection is really a whole body connection. And for me, that makes perfect sense. Absolutely. And scientifically, it's been shown yes. that there is a connection. I mean, we do release hormones when we are stimulating, stimulated vaginally. Yes. And then those hormones have an effect on the body. So there needs to be a tension down there in order for biologically us to experience certain healthful shifts in you know, our hormones. Right. And in our consciousness. Yes. Which then it affects the consciousness. I also really liked how she talked about the psychology of orgasm in the beginning of the, of the book. And that, yes, there's this biological thing that's happening. But then she also talks about when we're orgasming, we have this psychological shift that occurs. It's almost, um, there's this release of anxiety, self-consciousness, um, sort of self-regulation or restraint that we experience when we have orgasm. We go into this void state, basically, you know? And that's where we, we don't experience as many of the insecurities that we're carrying on a daily basis. So there's a psychological shift as well. Right, there's sort of a letting go, mm -hmm. becoming more free within mm -hmm. the moment of the orgasm itself. Right. Absolutely. I think anyone that's felt an orgasm has felt, even if it's just for a moment, the letting go the release of all of that. Which is interesting because, you know, she also talks about the preparation for orgasm, the relaxing of the nervous system, right? Mm -hmm. And how important that is and how oftentimes that is ignored or not considered as essential to sex. And I really liked her discussion about that because I, um, I think that that is really important to approach sex with the idea that it is that foreplay isn't just something that you know you have to push through because somebody's asking you to do it but that foreplay and foreplay isn't even really 
um, a, a, a good enough word for what she's talking about. But this idea that you have to relax the nervous system, you have to relax the the body, the mind and everything to feel safe, mm-hmm. safety, of course, being really important, but also to feel secure and loved by the person that you're with. Even if it's a one night stand, you can still feel safety, security and love in that moment versus oftentimes how people have sex, which is, you know, just try and get off with some kind of end goal in mind, you know, being rushed through all of this process to get to that end result. Right. And this is, I love this actually, because this is a point that she makes very clear in the beginning of the book. She says, there's this difference between bad sex and good sex. Yes. Because no matter what kind of sex we're having, we are having a dopamine release. With that dopamine release, we have this chemical dependency that starts to happen, whether it's good sex or bad sex, right? But if it's bad sex, where we feel threatened or unsafe, yet we're having this dopamine release when we're having it, we start to become addicted to this bad sexual experience. Mm Versus good sex, where we feel very safe and secure and held, and we have this dopamine release. We start to become addicted or accustomed to a different kind of sex. So she really distinguishes the two, because there is this biology that makes us dependent on this chemical release that happens through orgasm. It depends on where that comes from, right? Which which line it's coming from. It's If, if it's a negative... Mm-hmm experience or a positive experience and in the past women have mostly experienced bad sexual encounters right or i would even say a lot of women don't even know what kind of sexual encounters they're experiencing (laughs) i mean i didn't know i was having bad sex while i was having bad sex (laughs) exactly we 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 have no idea actually (laughs) the difference between the two but there is a difference biologically the body may not know necessarily but because it's the same chemical release but then there's a psychology and the spirituality behind it which actually does change the experience and that's what she goes on to talk about in the book I do. I really like that distinction that she makes between that. Going back to the point of not really knowing if you're having good or bad sex, not really knowing very much about sex, you know, just knowing. And we, we will get into definitely her discussion about porn and the and, and sex, but um, so I don't want to jump too far ahead yet, but definitely the kinds of examples that we've had, the sort of information and I'm just speaking personally at this point, the kind of information that I had was very limited. And so I didn't for many years know that I may have have not been having the best sex to the best of my potential. And I would even say even now, as I'm 43, even now, I still haven't had the best sex. My, you know, I haven't reached my full potential because I'm just starting to learn these things this late in life. I'm going to end with that. I don't know what to say after that. <laughs> That's too personal, we'll but I think sure. we should get personal. We'll, we'll make sure that her partner doesn't listen to this podcast. <laughs> well, it isn't a reflection on my partner. No, absolutely It's not. more of a reflection on myself. Yeah, and and that's definitely what Naomi stresses in the book. It's like when women start to know themselves better, then their partners can show up and meet them there. Absolutely, because bad sex isn't just the other person being a bad sexual partner. And I mean, to be fair, I think neither men or women have the information. We're both operating under the same absence of information. And so 
it's not the other person's fault. I mean, it's equally my fault. I'm just not aware enough to know what I want, what I need to not even, you know, I'm not even aware enough to know that I'm having bad sex, like I said earlier, or that not even bad sex, mediocre sex or sex that is not leaving me completely fulfilled, sex that is not connecting me with myself, Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. which is another point that Naomi makes um, that I love that sex is, you know, really about connecting with yourself. It's really nobody's fault. We have a long history of trauma, disconnection, and not understanding our sexuality. I mean, I think that that's true. We have inherited centuries of trauma, inherited centuries of violence, and our sexuality being used as a source for control rather than a celebration, especially in the West. Yeah, in her in her chapter called The Traumatized Vagina, she goes into rape and, you know, things that I didn't even think about in terms of rape. I didn't realize, and she points this out, I didn't realize how devastating rape can be in war. And women aren't just raped. They are brutalized and they are damaged. Right. You know? And she goes in to talk about that, how... Women are cut internally. They're just traumatized. Yeah, so so there's something that's beyond what she keeps going back to is that something is beyond just perversion. That rape, especially when it is used as an act of war, is not used because the men have, uh, you know, are being perverted. It's not about that at all. It's about subjugating women. It's about controlling women. It's a way to really take a woman's sense of whole being away from them, to take away their voice, to take away any power that they may have. And also she talks about rape as being something that stays with a woman for her whole life. I can't speak from experience. I have not been raped, but I have experienced that in my family. And I can attest to any amount, any type of rape, whether it's something as traumatic as what she's describing uh, from about the women in Sierra Leone, um, I mean, certainly that's extreme, but any amount of that, even molestation, is something that women carry with them for the rest of their lives. And I would even say, in my experience, pass on to their children and then pass on to their children. It, it, it doesn't just go away. Right. You know? I mean, if, if the vagina and the brain have such an intimate connection and, you know, our sexuality is a direct reflection of our sense of self, confidence, courage, creativity assertiveness, then of course, if that's damaged, Mm -hmm. then we suffer in ways that go beyond the physical. And then what she talks about with a lot of these rape victims is this vaginal numbness due to the, the trauma, this desensitization that they often feel. And I think that that was also something that I really appreciated her addressing because, again, not speaking from experience as someone who's who has experienced rape, but this idea of vaginal numbness is really interesting to me because I think that that is something that happens to women even if they have not been raped. I think that that is a systemic problem that women experience in the general population when we have never been taught to understand, appreciate, love, and value our vaginas. And then that's tied into this this idea of rape. You know, right now we're sort of in this, you know, rape 
culture following the Me Too movement and women speaking out about sexual harassment and things like that. But going back even further, again, talking about even my own experience with my mother and her mother before her, and maybe even her mother before her, you know, when when a woman gets raped, she passes that on to her daughter. She passes that on in ways that are very difficult to even understand and even in speak in words. But for me, my mother was fearful for me. She was worried that I would be raped. She was worried that I would be molested. So for her, she gave me advice, not about loving my vagina, but protecting my vagina from the possibility of rape. So that was really important for me growing up, which is very different from what Naomi Wolf is saying as in opposition to that, teaching a daughter to love her vagina, teaching a daughter to see her power through her vagina rather than fearing her vagina and seeing that as a source of victimization. Mm -hmm. Well, and that goes back to the biology again. Like if we don't feel safe, if we don't feel secure, if we're in a constant state of stress, then our bodies can't relax. We can't open up. Absolutely. I found this really interesting actually talking about how the the vagina becomes numb or desensitized. She talks about how the nerves of the vagina are actually so delicate down there that they can be easily damaged. And she even said that that sitting for long periods of time or yoga poses or dance poses, stretches, can actually damage the nerves. And then I thought, well, geez, you know, with the tight clothes that women are told they have to wear, you know, and the fact that a lot of women shave down there <laughs> and we are constantly sitting behind our computers or in the car, you know, that there are more reasons why we're experiencing numbness down there. Yes. Environmental, psychological, <laughs> social reasons yeah. why we experience numbness in our vagina. And I would even say that we're so numb to our vagina that we don't even know we're numb. It's like a numbness of numbness. Yeah, and that's why, you know, they were saying that some women can experience orgasm with just the touch of a feather, but most women need lots of friction in order to experience orgasm, and that is a direct result of being numb. You know, you need more stimulation. Right. Imagine having orgasm with just a touch. That would be wonderful. That. <laughs> that would be wonderful. I will continue to imagine that because that's that's something that seems it seems foreign. It seems almost unattainable. Yeah. You know what I really enjoyed about this book was the how much she went over the history of the vagina and how it was at one time this very sacred thing and then over time, you know, became this sort of evil, ugly, disgusting, amazing. even saying those words is horrible. <laughs> I hate that. Oh, but that's the truth. I mean, that's basically what happened. Yeah, I think that as is, is disgusting and horrible as those words are, those were the kinds of words that were used to describe women, women's sexuality. Well, she has a whole chapter about the Victorian vagina, but even before that, ways in which the vagina over time have become a source of, rather than a source of life, a source of destruction, a destructive force, something that needs to be controlled, something that needs to be repressed. I mean, not even just the vagina, but women's sexuality in general, something that is aligned with sin, 
and the fall of man and, and Eve and all of that whole narrative of the creation story in the Bible. Absolutely. I mean, before the loss of the goddess in Samaria, there's that iconic woman holding the snake and the lotus. Do you know that goddess figure? Yes. And so the, the, the snake is the penis and the vagina is the lotus and they're equally held. And then, you know, history shows that the goddess was then fragmented and mythology starts to reveal how the woman who was honored before is now denigrated, fragmented, demoralized, disenfranchised, right? And Eve's sex was sinful. Women became the property of men. Women were burned at the stake as witches. And these women were the women that were more sexual in the communities in town. I mean, women wore chastity belts. That really happened. <laughs> women wore <laughs> chastity belts. Yes. And, of course, now and back then, women's clitorises were removed. That's still it's happening. still happening now, yes. Yes, yeah, so no wonder, right? Yeah. No wonder it takes um, a certain person that has been, I don't know, living in a different paradigm than the one that most of us have been living in to show us something different, show us another possibility, or even what she describes as the difference between Eastern and Western cultures mm -hmm. and religious traditions, even how different religious traditions have treated the woman, have treated the feminine, and have treated women's sexuality mm -hmm. is so very different. And I think, you know, we this podcast is also about discussing and recognizing problems that are sort of specific to the South. And for me, a person who has grown up in the South, the image that I always got from my experiences within my family, but also experiences in different churches that I went to when I was younger, was the Holy Virgin Mary, who was pure, who was the example of the divine feminine and that and that word wasn't even really used in that context i mean certainly divinity but not the divine feminine um i really didn't hear that word too much later on in my life so for me sexuality was not aligned with religion whatsoever it was something completely separate from or non-existent or non -ex or it should be non-existence <laughs> <laughs> repressed into non-existence or saved for marriage uh, which I find very foreign to me now would never do that to my own daughter but certainly I can understand the tradition in which they are operating which is the same one again that separates sexuality from religion and spirituality which is so unfortunate and this is where we come from we come from understanding our sexuality in this way. And this is why we're so disconnected. She then goes into talking about the liberated vagina, which I think is important for us to go over as well. After the sexual revolution started happening, several things happened, one of which was that women discovered that they didn't they no longer needed a man in order to be satisfied sexually. So there was this sort of praise for getting rid of the man. We can take care of ourselves sexually. We can have our vibrators and we can masturbate and, you know, that whole thing. And then she also talks about how even with this, even with this, what seemed to us and really was, I think, at the time, considering where we were coming from, what seemed to us as like a full on liberation uh, really was doing us 
simultaneously equal harm and a part of that and we can start to sort of segue into the porn industry and her discussion about that because I think it's very uh, important and valuable but during that time period there was still a disconnect between sex and the orgasm and spirituality and although there probably was a connection between sex and women's empowerment those two were aligned I don't think that the deeper spiritual connection was was really there to support it and so it was enough for women to be able to have a vibrator to have birth control pills to be able to own their own sexuality and go out and 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 have sex unashamedly Mm -hmm. but then here comes the porn industry right along with it which becomes an industry Mm -hmm. and how that has then changed sex in such a dramatic way Mm-hmm. You know, and then sex really starts to become an addiction. For some people, yes, yeah, sex becomes an addiction, but it certainly becomes, I think, especially now, especially now, and I'm, I'm an older generation, so I can't speak uh, to women who are in their early 20s and 30s, but what I see now is a more access to porn than ever before, a total just complete instantaneous array of sex at any point in time and so that the use of pornography is much higher than it was for me when I was younger in my 20s and 30s mm-hmm. right and well and and addiction again is is tricky right because when you go back to the beginning of the book and she talks about the biological addiction that happens when we release dopamine with good sex that's a good addiction but then you have this porn industry which is a very external kind of engagement with sex and that is what she would term as bad sex and a bad addiction right yeah right because i think what she's saying even within the porn industry itself we start to see a shift in the in the types of images that are that are given to us predominantly and the way that sex is portrayed you know early and i've even looked back at some old porn you know early in the porn there was stories you know there was a narrative being told there was still a part of what she talks about as the goddess array this sort of reverence for the female body reverence for all the parts of the body a pace that's much slower and as as porn has become more and more and more inundated in our everyday lives and people need more and more stimulation they need more stimulation of a certain kind you know in some cases all of the the foreplay all of the goddess array all of the pace of sex has been completely removed and so people in what she talks about as part of that addiction to porn which also you could say even if you're not addicted you might have a habit even that creates a situation where People want more aggressive porn. People want more extreme types of uh, porn and imagery, and they want it faster. And they, in some cases, want, you know, just like snippets of a particular, like, climax, not the whole process to get to the climax, just the climax itself. Mm -hmm. So, so much has been stripped of sexuality within porn and these are for so many people what they know about sex this is their 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 teacher these are the images that develop their sexual fantasies this is what they see and know about sex if they're looking at porn especially if they start looking at it at a very young age and continue to look at it consistently throughout their lives yeah and i think she makes the point that it's not porn per se that's the problem it's the chronic masturbation, the chronic use, but the masturbation to porn, that's the problem, right? Because, and especially for men, if you go back to the biology, is if men, when they release dopamine during 
during orgasm, they become depleted, then they're depleted. So they need more and more and more intense porn and more stimulation to then have an equal release, an equal you know, experience, an equal orgasm. And so then it becomes addictive. So I really, I actually liked that idea that it's not necessarily porn itself. It's the masturbation to porn. But then I wonder, it's like, well, <laughs> who watches porn and doesn't masturbate? Like, does that happen? I don't think that that happens. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> I would say that maybe she's, yeah, porn is an interesting topic because a lot of people I feel like don't want to touch it. People don't want, because porn is so into, is so connected to so many, what we consider the sexual revolution, the ability to watch porn, both men and women freely to, to uh, express one's fantasy through porn. All of these things are seen as very positive, I think, in our culture. Maybe. I don't know. For the most part, I get the sense that it is, for some people, a very positive thing. So in order to start to attack porn, then, you know, it's a pretty slippery slope. Where do you go? Where do you draw the line? And how and how do you keep it from infringing upon our sexual rights, or our sexual liberation? I think that you have to still see porn as what it is, though. It is still an industry. Yeah. And it's a perfect industry for our culture, right? It is. This fast food nation, this mass-produced you know, GMO foods. I mean, that's basically what it is, right? And she talks about that. I love that. She talks about how porn is what highly processed or GMO food is, you know, for this country. I mean, it just makes sense <laughs> that we would have this fast-paced, fast-forward pornographic vagina, like on demand. Yes, it's who we and are. And use Americans. it to sell our food. <laughs> use it to sell everything, right? I like the quote. She says, porn addiction abundantly serves the status quo. Porn puts people to sleep conceptually and politically as well as erotically. Yeah. And I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, <laughs> I'm gonna to pair that with another quote that I like from this chapter. A nation of masturbating people who are looking at screens rather than at one another, who are consuming sex like any other product, and who are rewiring their brains to find less and less abandon and joy in one another's arms, and to bond more and more with pixels, is a subjugated, not a liberated population. Yes, I love that quote. Yeah. So I really also like her discussion about the uh, pace of porn and the ways in which it sort of teaches um, or it fails to teach, I guess, uh, young men and women both sort of the reality of the pace of sex. Mm -hmm. And she goes into this a little bit, but I think I would like to talk about it even a little bit more than what she does. The This fear that when a woman can't reach an orgasm, that there's something wrong with her, right? Or this sort of anxiety and pressure around reaching orgasm. Now, some women may not have this problem at all. Maybe some women just reach orgasm and it's no problem at all. But I think for some women, reaching or orgasm can be a problem. And one of the things that I learned in my life, and it took me quite a while to learn this, was that it takes time and it's okay to take that time. Because for a long time, I grew up looking at, well, before porn, I looked at magazines. And then when I had access to porn, I looked at certain types of porn. And none of those things ever really showed me a pace, right? It never really, well, first of all, it really never showed me a lot of women having orgasms. I certainly saw a lot of male ejaculation, but not a lot of female ejaculation. And then, of course, the pace. So the fact that you really need to slow down 
in order to reach it. And even if you are having orgasms very quickly and you, you might say to yourself, well, I'm having an orgasm very quickly, so there's nothing wrong with my orgasms. I'm pretty content with them. But what if you could have a deeper orgasm? What if you can you know, have that more transcendental orgasm that she's speaking about? And it probably will take more time in order to get there. So I think it's really important to understand that, you know, the pace is important. Slow down, take the time. Don't be anxious if it takes you 15, 30 minutes, an hour, however long it takes you to reach a point in which you can have an orgasm, then that's what your body needs. And that's normal. It's actually abnormal to try to rush it, to try to be fast for the sake of the whole setting of the porn, you know, what we think sex should look like and, and how long it should take. Yeah, absolutely. Pace, pace, which she talks about, you know, women are almost double the amount of time for orgasm than men. I would say even more than that. Um, and then place, which going back to the science that she talks about in the beginning of the book, the pelvic nerve looks different for every woman. There could be more nerve endings in the clitoris or the vagina or the anus. But it's different for every woman. And they're finding they're finding this out now. You know, so it's not just you're 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 a woman who's sexually evolved because you have a vaginal orgasm. No, no, no. Some people might actually have anal orgasms because they have more nerve endings there. Or some women are clitoral, right? So depending on our anatomy, then the place is important. So pace, place, you know, these are all important things. The porn culture, the porn industry, all of this is so readily available to young people. And so as a parent... It's and I'm a parent. I have two boys. It's really interesting to think about their sexuality. They're still really young, but they're coming to the point where they might start to look for, you know, porn on their phones. And of course, I have parental controls and things like that, but I cannot control everything. And so then now I have to start having conversations with them about porn. And I think it's a really interesting um conversation to have and I wonder how other parents have it I wonder how men who use porn have this conversation with their children they don't do they or do that yeah exactly <laughs> they hide it <laughs> they use it and they hide it from their 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 children and they tell them not to use it maybe I mean I'm not really sure I think that's these are the kinds of conversations that I feel like we're not yet having still I think we're still afraid to talk about oh, porn sex education in the United States is about abstinence you know in other countries I've read I don't know firsthand but that they actually start early they start early and they actually talk about what is sex you know I think in kindergarten but what we know is abstinence just stay away from sex you know so it's not happening people don't talk about it Right. And even if they do talk about it, I think that there's still not enough honesty about it. I think that people are either hiding it. Well, they are hiding. I mean, there's still porn is still something that you might hide from somebody. You might hide from your partner, especially if they've expressed that they don't like it. Or maybe you both use it openly, but you hide it from the world. You hide it from your, you know, your children. You hide it from your friends. You don't really talk openly about it. Or it's just accepted. Or it's That's just accepted. Accept it as something that you're going to do. So there's really no need to talk about it. 
of course he uses porn or of course you know there's the assumption that all men use porn I mean we've kind of gotten to the point where we just have to if you're in the dating scene you just have to just say well of course well and it was really interesting right because in our book club meeting when we were going over this book we had a couple generations of women and the younger generations had a different perspective on porn you know it was very much like well that's just what we do we do it everyone does it that's what we do you know whereas the older generations were just well except hang on a second (laughs) there's something wrong here you know it's not completely accepted as normal you're right there was definitely a difference in the generations. so we had several women in our group who were in their 20s and then we had some of the rest of us were in our late 30s, early 40s. And there was definitely a difference between the way that we viewed porn. The younger generation did say, well, it's just, we all use it. It's a part of the culture. It's a part of what everybody does. And isn't it a positive thing? Because certainly if you start to question its its value, then you're starting to board, go into the realm of being prudish maybe. You know, there's this whole fear of being a prude. If you even suggest that there might be something wrong with porn, then now you're being a prude. And I think that that's very problematic. And for the older women in our group, we knew a time where porn was not so readily available, where we actually dated boys that didn't look at porn every day wow, you know, that the our, our sexual experiences, not to say that they are necessarily better, but they were certainly different. And there wasn't this, in my early sexual experiences, at least, I can say that there wasn't this sort of feeling that I am with somebody who clearly looks at porn a lot because their expectation for me in bed is predicated or dictated by what they see, you know, and they expect me to do a certain thing. They ask for certain things. They fantasize about certain things. And I can clearly make that connection between not only that they look at porn, but the type of porn that they probably look at, you know, very often. Absolutely. And and since for, for some of us, it's not normal. Right. You know, there are emotions that come up when we realize our partner is spending all this time looking at porn, right? And those are valid emotions because it's almost like, okay, Watching porn <laughs> is actually a threat to our, our connection with our partners because really, well, for so many reasons, but they're looking at other women for one, but also porn actually, you know, desensitizes a man. So it actually takes away his vigor, you know, to have sex with us. So of course we're going to be upset about that. Why wouldn't, why wouldn't we be? It's adaptive, right? <laughs> right. It's not actually normal for our men to be spending all their time looking at other women and then having a physical response to it, which makes them less available to us. And that's what she goes over in the book, which I, I actually agree with. And call me old-fashioned. <laughs> <laughs> You're so old-fashioned. <laughs> I agree too. I think that for so many years in my life, I have been told that there's something wrong with me for being jealous of my partner looking at other women. And it's not even just that a beautiful woman has walked by. And of course, who doesn't want to look at a beautiful woman or a beautiful man and acknowledge beauty in the world? That's one thing. But to repeatedly, in some cases on a daily basis, look at other women and all sorts of other women to the point where it seems 
like obsession (laughs) and I'm not supposed to be jealous of that or I'm not supposed to internalize that or compare myself especially if it's something that's not even any any near remotely close to what I look like you know I mean I I didn't see a lot of in my previous partners men looking at photographs of women that look similar to me (laughs) (laughs) to make me feel good about myself (laughs) so I wrestled with my own self-worth for many years but at the same time men telling me that there was something wrong with me that there was no reason for me to be jealous for them to try to tell me that they were they could be both attracted to me and still be obsessed Um, and I'm using the word obsessed because it seemed and felt like obsession to me now to the person it might not have but I There is nothing wrong with being jealous. In fact, it's pretty normal to be jealous of your partner looking at another woman in a way that is beyond just recognizing an attractive person. Absolutely. And there's a scientific component to this, which I love, right? Yes. I mean, it's like the biology is such that if they have an addiction to porn and they're constantly depleting their hormones then they have nothing left for their partners right which are real people and so it's obvious that we would have this reaction so you're completely valid thank you thank you for validating (laughs) (laughs) but I do want to just say that I'm still always hesitant to say broadly that that um that porn, you know, for some people, I know this is a very touchy subject, and some sex counselors even actually use porn in their therapy to try to liven up their couples, and, and especially if there's problems in, you know, in certain areas. I do recognize that, but I do also feel like fundamentally underneath that is the therapist's maybe lack of awareness of the connection that really needs to be reached, which is beyond just... Um, porn and sex there's probably something deeper although I'm not a therapist so I cannot speak on that and I probably should just erase that no I love it I love how you're willing to be so sensitive and (laughs) and consider some people's you know addictions or affinity for porn but I kind of want to draw a hard line in the sand I mean, I would like to draw a hard line, but at the same time, I just worry that some people will be immediately turned away. And we've seen that in our book club, especially with some of the younger, Mm -hmm. the younger women who have grown up looking at porn from a very early age and it being more normalized. They definitely uh, were turned off by a total hard line. But I like the way that Naomi talks about this because she says again and again, she says it's not the porn per se. It's the habitual masturbation to porn, which then leads to this biological hormonal, you know, thing that's happening in our bodies, which then actually affects how we can connect with our partner. So there's something here, right, scientific that's happening that I think needs to be acknowledged and addressed. Yes, absolutely. So I really like when she turns to discussing a new framework for women's sexuality. And she does this by turning to the spiritual practices of Tantra. And I like when she says of porn that, quote, it leaves out the connections to the vagina of spirituality and poetry art and mysticism and leaves behind the larger question of the quality of a masturbating woman a masturbating woman's relationship to herself so for her um, she talks about 
what she calls the goddess array. So the goddess array is what a series of it's an approach to sexuality that treats the woman as a goddess. The woman is cared for, the woman is caressed, the woman is valued, she is given time. She's given time to experience whatever she's going to experience without the pressure for an end result, without the pressure for an orgasm. And I think that that's a beautiful sort of way of approaching sexuality. Right, because sex starts before we get into the bedroom, right? Yes. Intimacy is not just about taking our clothes off <laughs> and Absolutely. getting in bed, right? And I think all most women would say they understand this intimately. We get this. And this is the goddess array that she talks about. What is it exactly? Because it kind of seemed a bit esoteric. And so then I went back and back to the book. And for me, I think, and correct me if I'm wrong, but I think some of the components of the goddess array, or at least if you're treating a woman in this way, a man will do things like eye gazing. He'll do things like non-sexual touch, which you talked about. He'll use words of affirmation. Actually calling a woman a goddess really changes things. You know, even if it sounds silly, giving full attention and presence and, you know, doing things for her outside of the bedroom space. And then I think she also talked about like stimulation and excitement in a relationship as being really important. And taking care of the woman in in ways beyond just in the like you said in the bedroom or even ways that are sexual but listening listening to the woman uh (laughs) helping her with you know not seeing household duties as her responsibility Mm -hmm. but as an equal responsibility between both partners Mm -hmm. you know trying to be exciting those are all a part of it and really all of it is creating a safe and sacred space for the relationship, which then has an effect on the nervous system. She relaxes, she feels safe, which then has an effect on her sexuality. She can open up more, she can trust. So, I mean, it's not, it's not super esoteric. This is, it's not really, it's really kind of common sense. You know, I mean, I think we could do a whole nother podcast about, um, some of the reasons beyond just sexual that women feel like they're not being taken care of, you know, to where they, you know, it goes back to even being disconnected from themselves, not having time to focus on sex. If, you know, a woman is juggling so many different responsibilities, trying to throw just one more thing on a woman's plate is one example of how sex isn't just about the bedroom it's about everything it's 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 completely holistic i mean some people can easily compartmentalize probably and i really don't even like that word compartmentalize but some people can easily go from maybe a very stressful situation to a very you know sensual supercharged sexual experience Especially if with maybe a new partner, it's much easier to do that with a new partner. But maybe in a marriage where you've been with somebody for a really long time, it's not as easy maybe to go from extreme stress or just feeling used up and then trying to then just give more of yourself to someone maybe you're already giving so much to anyway. 
I think that that's a part of it. But I also think that what she really focuses on even more, and I think where I what the part about her book that I really like a lot is when she starts talking about her retreat her Tantra retreat and she starts to see these other men who are trying to learn better sexual sex techniques through this practice and they're really uh, appreciating what it takes or not what it takes that's not the right way to say that but what it means to really value a woman and give her what she needs in order to be fully um, experiencing her sexuality to its fullest potential. Mm-hmm. And that goes a little bit deeper than just trying to spice it up. And I think that's the point I want to make here is that isn't just this isn't just about spicing up your mm-hmm. life or your marriage. This is about going deeper. This is about having a real connection with your sexuality and your spirituality and all the elements of your life. One can get too focused on excitement. And I'm not saying that excitement is not important. I'm not saying that change and variation is not important. I certainly think it's important to do things differently and not ever get stuck in a rut and to always be trying new things. I think that's important for any situation, whether or not you're trying to have a successful sexual relationship with somebody else or you're just trying to be happy in general. It's important to do that. Absolutely. I think I think where why that's important is because understanding the goddess is actually understanding cycles. And a woman has cycles. Right. And that and that's really, I think, why she talks about that. You know, the goddess array includes all the ups and downs of a woman's emotional life. And there are different needs at different moments. Right. And a man who understands the goddess array learns to read the woman in such a way. He's so sensitive and present to her needs that he can deliver what she needs at that moment. You know, Naomi Wolf really goes into the Tantra practice because she is going to this retreat and she's meeting all of these other women and and these men that are going through this, um, I guess, instruction for how to do a sacred spot massage. And through that, she really sees a whole different way to approach sexuality in general. And I think that's what really informs her understanding of the goddess array. And I'm really excited because the second part of this podcast is our talk with River Blue Lotus, who is a tantrika, and she's going to be talking even more about yoni massage and a goddess household and what it means to be a tantrika. And she's also a tantric coach for couples, and she she uses the word coach versus a counselor. Um, so she works with couples who are interested in these tantra practices and also in just elevating their relationship and their sexual experiences to a higher level. I love this. I'm just putting this together. River Blue Lotus. Lotus from the reading of Vagina. I now know means vagina, right? Yes. And it's so that in in the Hindu tradition, vagina is called or considered the lotus of her wisdom. That's I mean, beautiful. <laughs> I didn't know that. What a difference from what we know or <laughs> connect vagina with in this culture. So that concludes our show today. Thank you so much for listening. If you like us, please subscribe to our podcast and give us some positive feedback. If you want to get more information, follow us on Facebook. We're at FemSouth. We also have a website, FemSouth.com. We'd love to hear from you. 
Let us know what you think and keep listening.